When I was a, a child or maybe my early teen years, I, I could hardly believe it when I found out that there were Christians in this world who would blow up other Christians with bombs because they were the wrong kind of Christian. I could hardly believe it. What I'm referring to is, was known as the Troubles in Northern Ireland. The Troubles raged for about 30 years from the late 1960s through the late 1990s. Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland were at war with each other. Of course, there was more to it than that. The Troubles were not primarily about religion. They had more to do with national identity and political power and human rights and a bunch of other things. But the fact remains, there was a violent, deadly conflict raging for 30 years in which one side of the conflict were Catholics and the other side of the conflict were Protestants, and they were literally killing each other. Over 3,500 people were killed during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Over 50% of those killed were civilians. It took a lot of work on all sides of the conflict to bring the violence to an end. This was accomplished largely through the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 in which many of the major parties and influencers in Ireland worked together for a long time, hammering out an agreement that everyone could live with. They all had to give in some way. Everyone had to compromise to some extent. That's not easy in a setting in which everyone is convinced that they are in the right and the other side is evil, and compromise is a dirty word. The Good Friday Agreement did not completely end the conflict. There were a couple of parties that refused to compromise and have tried to keep the fight going even to this day, but they became the outliers rather than the major players. There are still hard feelings, mistrust between various factions, segregation between Catholics and Protestants still, but there's also a wide-scale recognition that compromise conversation. Doing the hard work of coming together is the only way forward. You would think that would be obvious to people who strive to follow a man who prayed that they may all be one. You would think that Christ's example of mutual love and forbearance and grace would preclude the petty divisions that have always plagued humankind. The reality is that disagreement is unavoidable in this world. Even within the Christian community, disagreement is unavoidable. Acts 4.32 says of the first Christians, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. But you don't have to go much further in the book of Acts to find out they were not all of one mind. Disagreements arose almost from the beginning. There were disagreements over food distribution to the widows. There were disagreements over what foods and what people should be considered clean or unclean. As the church grew in number and spread farther out across the world, these disagreements became more pronounced and harder to manage. Our Bible reading for today takes place Around the year 50, the church was roughly 20 years old. 
And when I say the church, I'm not talking about a particular congregation. I mean the church in general, Christianity as a whole. This was only 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity was still a brand new reality. The apostles were still figuring out what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. For those who had believed in Jesus the longest, those who had been following him during his earthly ministry or became believers immediately following the resurrection, they were all of them Jewish. Believing in Jesus didn't change that. Being Jewish is who they were. They, they continued in that identity. And as the leaders of the church, as the people who had been in charge all along, they assumed that's the way it would always be. That believing in Jesus meant becoming a Jew. It's hard for us today to understand that mindset because for thousands of years now, Christians and Jews have been two separate things, sometimes even two antagonistic things. But for the earliest Christians, there was no dichotomy. To be a believer in Jesus meant you were a Jew who knew Jesus to be the Messiah. You still practiced all the Jewish laws and rituals that you always had because that was your identity as the chosen people of Israel. If someone who wasn't from that background became a believer in Jesus, then naturally you ex expect them to become Jews too, to take on that same identity as the chosen people. The Apostle Paul saw it differently than that. Paul had been traveling all over the place, spreading the message of Jesus. His death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. His resurrection and the promise of eternal life. At first, Paul went to the Jews with that message. Every town he came to, the first place he went was to the synagogue. But he didn't limit himself to that. He preached Jesus to the Gentiles as well. And what he found was that there were many more Gentiles open to the gospel of Jesus Christ than there were Jews receiving the word. He started organizing these converts into churches. He preached to them. He taught them. He ministered to them. He served them the sacraments. What he didn't do was order them to become Jewish. He did not command them to take the law of Moses upon themselves. That was a problem for a lot of the leaders back in Jerusalem. They thought that they should all be living under the same rule, that the law of Moses was for all the people of God, that someone could not be in communion with them who did not take on the same law as them. So Paul and Peter and all the other leaders went up to Jerusalem to have it out and to decide this issue once and for all. Sometimes called the Jerusalem Council or the Apostolic Council, it's described in our reading from Acts 15. All of the apostles met together in Jerusalem to decide this one basic question. Must a person become Jewish in order to be Christian? Surprisingly, it's Peter rather than Paul, who takes the lead in defending the right of Gentiles to remain Gentiles. I say surprisingly because Peter had been far more hesitant than Paul about Jews mixing with Gentiles. Peter was pretty strict about keeping to the customs of the Jewish people, and he wanted to maintain a distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews. But God had shown him in a vision 
the error of his ways. God had sent to him Gentiles who were full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And God had revealed to Peter that there was no longer any distinction to be made between him and them. Just as Peter had been saved by faith, so too had they. Just as God had poured out the Holy Spirit on Peter, so too had God filled them with the Holy Spirit. Just as God had declared Peter clean, not because of the kosher laws, but because he was washed by Jesus. So too had the Gentiles been cleansed from all unrighteousness by Jesus Christ. Just as God had... Just as Peter had the the promise of eternal life by the resurrection of Christ, so too did they. What more was needed? So although this was hard for Peter to grasp, even though it went against everything he had been raised to believe, when it came time to take a stand, Peter spoke up for what is truly essential, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 10, Peter says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by putting on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we were able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter makes the case that if salvation comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus, then living according to the Jewish law had nothing to do with it. If living by the Jewish law could save a person, then they, the Jews, wouldn't have needed Jesus to come. Jesus came because they couldn't be saved by the law. The law was too heavy for them to bear. Their ancestors had failed to bear it. They had failed to bear it. Their only hope of salvation was that Jesus himself bore the weight of the law for all of them. Why then? Why would they try to heap that yoke that they themselves could not bear onto other people when that yoke was powerless to save? And those people had already found salvation in Jesus. I'm not sure what Paul thought about all of this. I mean what Paul thought about Peter stealing his thunder. Paul had traveled from distant lands all the way up to Jerusalem so that he could present the case for the Gentiles to the council. And then Peter steps in and makes the case for him before Paul can even open his mouth. Isn't that just like Peter? (laughs) Jumping in to steal the spotlight. Paul knew that Peter was a latecomer compared to himself when it came to this way of thinking. But Paul didn't blow up the negotiations over personal differences. Verse 12, the whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Peter had laid up the shot for them. All Barnabas and Paul had to do was slam dunk it with a bunch of stories about the amazing acts God was doing, the way the Holy Spirit was moving among the Gentiles. Whether Peter would get credit for the negotiations, whether Paul would get credit for the outcome, that didn't really matter. What really mattered was being faithful to what God was doing. 
But then James, James couldn't resist taking the credit. The James in this passage is not James the disciple, the brother of John. Remember that? James had been martyred back in chapter 12. The James here is the brother of Jesus. James, the son of Mary. He was the oldest of Jesus' siblings. He had not been a believer in Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, there's some indication that James thought his brother was a little bit crazy. But after Jesus was resurrected... One of the first people he appeared to was his brother, James. That'll turn a guy around, seeing your dead brother alive again. And it did so for James. It turned him around. Instantly, he became not only a believer, but a leader of the believers. After all, he was the Lord's brother. By the time of the Apostolic Council, James had long been revered as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And as the church in Jerusalem was sort of the mother church, James was sort of the leader of the whole church. Roman Catholics claim Peter as the first pope, but when you read Acts 15, it sure sounds like James was the one playing that role. After recounting what he had heard, what he had discerned from Scripture, James then says in verse 19, Therefore I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. Isn't that something? I have reached the decision. This is how it's going to be because I've decided. And nobody challenged him on it. Peter didn't say, hey, wait a minute, your brother called me the rock on whom he would build his church. Paul didn't say, hold on, my authority doesn't come from you, it comes from Jesus. Nobody else spoke up. James said, this is what I've decided and that's the way it was. But what's more amazing about that is that James, up to this point, had been on the other side of the debate. James had been one of the main proponents of the Jewish law. He had been pushing for every new Christian to become Jewish. When Paul complained in his letters about Jewish Christians from Jerusalem trying to force the Jewish law onto Gentiles, he called them people sent by James. James was the leader of the opposition party. But he listened to his opponents. He listened to his opponents. And more importantly, he listened to God. He discerned what God was doing and what really mattered. James worked out a, a compromise arrangement. He didn't say, fine, let the Gentiles do whatever they want. He didn't say that. Neither did he hold to his previous position of they must be circumcised and live according to all the Jewish traditions. He didn't do that either. Instead, he made this compromise. He issued four requirements, four things that must still be commanded, the Gentiles must still be commanded to avoid. Write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. Those were four things that his side was unwilling to give on because they were things that mattered to them greatly. It's not that these things were central to salvation, but they were central to being able to come together as one people. The, to the Jews, these things were so abhorrent that if the Gentiles had continued in them, the Jews would have been unable to have fellowship with them. 
Ultimately, there was only one of those four requirements that stood the test of time to avoid fornication. It wasn't long before Paul was ignoring the other three. He even wrote in his letters that eating food sacrificed to idols was really nothing if the person eating it knew it was nothing. But he also wrote, it is still wrong to do it if it causes another Christian to stumble. And that is the point of the compromise worked out in Jerusalem. Being united in Christ and supporting one another's faith is more important than what you think on any particular topic. Let me say that again. Being united in Christ and supporting one another's faith is more important than what you think on any particular topic. With this compromise worked out in the Jerusalem Council, all of the apostles made it clear it wasn't James versus Paul or James versus Peter, or Peter versus Paul, or Jew versus Gentile. It was all about Jesus. Jesus above all. Sometimes it's nothing short of a miracle when people are able to do the hard work of coming together to put their differences aside long enough to ask, where is the Holy Spirit in all of this? To acknowledge that putting Jesus first means that it can no longer be us versus them because Jesus is for all. It's easy to get trapped in that mindset of us versus them. Jesus' own brother was trapped in that mindset for almost 20 years. That's how our world operates. That's how politics works. Often that's how business is run. Sadly, it's often the way it is in the church as well. This church recently went through a season of pitting one side against another. Not to the extent of the troubles in Northern Ireland, but then again, Jesus did say, if you curse someone in your heart, that's the same as murder. So, we're still in the process of recovering from the harm done by a lot of unchristian words and actions and a winner-take-all mentality. I won't say that it's all completely behind us, But thank God we have come through to a point where we can see that the hard work of coming together is more important than one Christian winning out over another. We have come to a place where we can recognize that compromise is not a dirty word. Indeed, the apostles showed us how to do it in the Bible. We have come to a place where we can celebrate that there are differences among us, and yet we are one church, united in one faith, called together by our one God and Father, redeemed by our one Savior, Jesus Christ, filled with the one Holy Spirit that empowers all believers. That work 
that work of coming together. It can be hard work. It, it requires that we listen, that we listen carefully to each other, just as the apostles listened to one another. It requires that we respect each other, just as the apostles did. Most of all, most of all, it requires that we love one another, even as Christ has loved each and every last one of us. Are we up to that task? I know that we are. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.